Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew and to chapter 1. As I look out this morning, it's, it's wonderful to see a number of our college students home for the week. And uh, we love you and we value your presence back here in our midst. We're grateful. Matthew 1, verse 18, this is one of the birth narratives. And as these are so very familiar to many of us, I do really want to charge you as I read this morning, imagine that you are a first century believer and that the gospel of Matthew was new and that you were hearing this uh, being read for the first time. Let's give our attention to the word of the living God, Matthew 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, long ago, your spirit authored these words through Matthew, the disciple. This morning, we pray that you will author them afresh upon our souls, that the power of the Holy Spirit would dwell in rich joy in our midst this morning, and that we would be those who are embraced <clears throat> by what is spoken here. Thank you for the gift of faith which you bestow liberally. And we come in our Savior's sweet name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by recounting to you a true story from the country of Scotland in the year 1685. It is from the book Men of the Covenant by Alexander Smelly, and it is told by a modern-day pastor. In that year, 1685, an 18-year-old young lady named Margaret Wilson was condemned for being unwilling to swear the oath of abjuration. That's a word we use every day, isn't it? What that oath was, was that King James, the last Catholic king of Scotland, was proponent, a proponent of the idea that he himself was not only the civil sovereign ruler over Scotland, but that he was the religious sovereign over all of the church of Scotland. 
Margaret was most willing to acknowledge that the king was her secular sovereign, but as a Christian, she could not swear to the rule over her soul by anyone other than Jesus Christ. She insisted that he was the sovereign ruler over his kingdom, and therefore it was into his hands alone that she entrusted her eternal destiny. Well, for that crime under King James... Margaret was tied to a stake in the Solway River, which was an estuary, and so as the tide came in, the water would come up and she would be drowned. To make matters more difficult for those who were her persecutors, a friend of hers, Margaret Locklison, was tied to a stake further out into the river so that young Margaret could watch her older friend, Margaret, perish in the incoming tide. Well, young Margaret was undaunted as she watched her friend die. She was reciting aloud chapters or verses from the eighth chapter of Romans, particularly so at the end of the chapter where she recited that neither death nor life, neither heights nor depths, nor anything in all of creation could separate her from the love of God in Christ. Well, as she was nearly drowned, Her persecutors untied her, splayed her out on the beach, and asked her if she would pray for James of Scotland. She said she certainly would because she assured them that she desired the salvation of all men. But could she swear her oath to him as the leader of her soul? She said, I will not. And the soldier plunged her head beneath the water, and she perished in Christ. 18 years old. Now the holy irony of her heart in that hour, a heart of faith, was that she refused to give spiritual allegiance to a human being because precisely her allegiance had already been given to King Jesus. The great irony of that was lost on her persecutors. Now, irony is a wonderful method of speech that strikes us with things that are odd, things that are unexpected, things that are completely out of place. The police station was robbed is a sentence of irony. You read of those things in the newspaper all the time. The fool's plot was brilliantly hatched. The fox in the hen house. God in flesh. Holy irony of the deepest and most remarkable kind. Something altogether unexpected. This morning, I want us to see, to embrace, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by the ironies, the unexpected things from the birth narrative in the Gospel of Matthew. These are gospel ironies, ironies that God intended for us to be impacted by. They're windows into the heart of our Father for us. These unexpected pictures drawing us into the affections of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for us, his people. Our God is communicating his majestic character and the fact that he wants to unite his character with the likes of us. 
And so this redemptive story of Christ's birth is meant to draw you and to draw me into a deeper, sweeter communion with the tender heart of our Father. These sacred birth narratives and their holy ironies are meant to draw us into the quieting and the comforting power of his affectionate love. Well, the Reverend George Robertson told the story once of Francis Schaeffer, of whom he was a contemporary. Francis Schaeffer, a brilliant theologian, he was walking with friends in the city of Paris one day, and they were going through a neighborhood that was replete with uh, many uh, women of ill repute, so to speak, and they passed a prostitute, and Schaeffer stopped, and to the dismay of his friends, he looked at her and he said, how much? And she gave him her price. And he asked again, he said, how much? Confused, she said again her price. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't mean how much do you cost. I mean, how much are you worth? You see, Schaefer understood that Jesus, when he came to earth, was confessing with his life and his deity and his incarnate humanity that his blood is the price of human life. His blood is the worth of a human life. And so this morning, as we dive into these four ironies that I want us to see this morning, see the majesty of the heart of God that he understands both his own worth and our worth that he has drawn together in the majesty of the gospel. Four ironies into the heart of God with the incarnation of Jesus. Look at the first with me. In order to do so, let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 1 and chapter 1 and verse 17. Read them with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And here's the first irony. What Matthew is doing in this genealogy is telling us that the uncreated creator is now found in our humanity. The one who has never had a genealogy from all eternity now possesses a human genealogy. He has subjected himself to parents and to an ancestry. Like us, God the Son has earthly parents and a heavenly father. As Americans, we're given a social security number at birth as children. You remember, don't you, that Jesus was given a number. His parents took him up to the hometown to be counted in a Roman census. And here there is a marvelous, humble identification with us that is so deep. Our Savior entered our flesh, walked on this sinful sod that you and I walk on, succumbed to all of the vagaries of the human life that you and I go through, and in addition to all of that, as Isaiah says, he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was afflicted and smitten by God. 
A lamb led to the slaughter, and upon him was laid the persecution, the affliction, the punishment that has brought you and me peace. Like us in every way, accepting sin and accepting the fact that he became the redeemer of all of his people. We might put this in a rather humorous way. Here in the South, we play that game, don't we? We play the game, who's your mama? Who's your daddy? Well, Jesus had the game played with him. Isn't your daddy, Joseph, a carpenter? Isn't your mama related to Elizabeth? Do you hear it? Just like us. The eternal son knows you so deeply because he became as you are. The one for whom a thousand years is as a day became subject to time, to summer and winter, to night and day, to sleep and to breakfast, to hunger and to thirst and to dogged weariness. This holy irony displays the depths and the lengths to which God's love has gone to enable us in the 21st century to be here right now this morning. It's remarkable that our rescuer is in the flesh and even now in the flesh. If God the Holy Spirit were to take you to heaven in this very moment, Your first sight and forever sight of Jesus Christ would be in his redemptive flesh. You will never know Jesus Christ outside of his glorified flesh. Because there will never be a time in heaven where you can separate that glorified flesh from the very reason why you are present in heaven. The first irony then is uncreated creator in our true humanity. Well, there's a second irony for us to marvel at this morning. Look at verses 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Christ took place when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And notice the language, and her husband Joseph Betrothal in that day, as Pastor Caleb said last week or the week before, was something far more than our engagement today. It was a legal contract, and so you could use the language of husband and wife. And here Matthew calls Joseph, her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Here's the second irony. It's that the one who came to remove your shame... And my shame, our scandal of heart, has himself always been from the moment of his conception to his death on the cross, a scandal in the eyes of the world. Jesus' earthly parents were to all appearances a scandal of unwed, unwed pregnancy. At a time when such a moral crime as that could be punished by stoning, 
In other words, our Savior's life began in undeserved shame. And God's Son has always, without interruption, been a scandal and a shame in the world. Now think of it. You can see crosses worn around the neck of those who have no idea what the cross means. You can see all throughout culture those who bandy about the name of Jesus as if they were best friends with Jesus. And yet as soon as culture hears that Jesus demands our repentance and Jesus demands that without holiness we'll never see the face of God and he demands that we cannot do that on our own strength and we must have him, he becomes a scandal all over again. The holy irony is that Christ willingly took upon himself our true shame, the scandal of my heart and your heart, that apart from grace is corrupted by nothing but perfect self-love. And it is that for which Jesus came. The New Testament Greek word throughout the New Testament for the scandal of the cross is this word, listen, scandalon from which we take our English word scandal and scandalous. The cross was considered by the Romans and by culture and even by the Jews as the most despicable, scandalous way to die. But listen to the author of Hebrews, which we read already this morning, as he shows us the power of the gospel for the transformed Christian life. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, listen, despising the shame. Jesus' intent was that he had to go to the cross to bear upon himself the deepest shame that culture had to offer and to do so in our place. Your Savior, in his perfect sonship, according to the will of the Father, has shamed shame for our sakes. Let me ask every one of us this morning, Have you ever given Jesus your shame? That's why he came. Let me ask it a different way. Have some of us grown so dull of heart, so comfortable with the illicit idols of our minds and of our hearts, that we've sort of casually begun to think that there's nothing so shameful about us that we really need Jesus. But you see, when we're in that place, what would be the need for the cross? What would be the need for Christ's incarnation? What would be the need for his death? If there's nothing scandalous, about us. So God the Holy Spirit says to us this morning, bring to the scandalous one your scandalous shame. That's why he came.
The holy irony is that the one whose whole life was an earthly scandal from conception to death has shamed our own scandalous hearts with his perfect forgiveness and love. Only God can shame shame with perfect forgiveness and perfect love. Come afresh to the scandalous one to be freed from your slavery to shame. Let me illustrate that again with a story from the exact same day in Scottish history. 1685, May 11th, the same day that Margaret Wilson perished. Not an 18-year-old girl, but a 17-year-old young man. He was in trouble with James VII of Scotland because his crime was assisting his mother in taking care of and shielding from the authorities a dissenting minister who did not agree with what James was doing. And so that was a high crime against the state And so he was tied to a stake before a royal firing squad at 17 years of age. When their weapons were loaded, he was commanded to cover his face. Listen to this young man. I will look you in the face. I have done nothing of which I need to be ashamed. But how will you look in that day when you shall be judged by what is written in this book? He had brought his Bible to what can only be described as an assassination. And when he held out his Bible, the guns were fired and he died. But listen, young Margaret and young Andrew, teenagers, they shamed wickedness by faith in Christ. How did they do that? Because they understood that they needed Jesus Christ to take away the scandal of their hearts above all else. And they knew that there was nothing that King James VII of Scotland that could give them that Jesus had not already given them. And they shamed wickedness by their wonderful earnest faith. Oh, that God would do the same with us day by day, month by month, year by year, no matter what God calls us to face. A third irony arises in verses 22 and 23. Read them with me. All this took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we repeat that word in song and we repeat it in our conversation. It is quite literally a Hebrew title. Im Anu El are the three parts of the Hebrew word. With us. God. Now, when that was spoken by Isaiah in the middle of the 700s before the birth of Christ, it was revolutionary, and it is revolutionary today. But imagine if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, and you'd been waiting 
for these centuries when God would fulfill his promise to send the Messiah, the one who would be God with us. It's quite possible that you as a Jew in Jesus' day, it had been 440 years since God had spoken through a prophet. And then John the Baptist bursts on the scene in his camel's hair coat. And John the Baptist splashes on the scene. And you're thinking to yourself as this quote from Isaiah is used by Matthew to speak of the coming of the Messiah. Well, I can understand if what you mean by this is that God is over us as a sovereign ruler. Yes, I get that. I think I can grasp that God is a deliverer and he is full of vengeance and justice and he will bring about righteousness in our day. I get that. Maybe God leading us to victory over our Roman oppressors. I get that. But surely not God with us in the trenches. Not God with us, dwelling with us in our hearts and in our homes. Now, you don't need to tell us out loud what it is, but if you're like me, over the last 72 hours during the Thanksgiving sort of break and holidays, if you had family together or friends that were together, there was surely at least one moment during those 72 hours when if you reflected on it, you would have to say, could God dwell in the midst of this bunch of knuckleheads? The conversations that took place, the words that were spoken, the language that might have been used under your breath, the thoughts about a family member or a friend, and then you remembered God dwells in our midst. God is with his church. God is with this church. And dear believer, God is with you. Not somewhere else. Not somewhere else off distant. But with you. Dwelling with you. Tabernacling, as John says in his gospel. In our midst. Surely not a God who celebrates with us at weddings and weeps with us at funerals. A a God who who welcomes home his prodigal sons and puts the best robes on them and shods their feet with sandals and then throws a party to shame all parties in such a way that the older brother just gets mad. A God who dwells with us like that. You see, if you push away this truth, then you'll miss it all. And you'll miss everything during this Christmas. Celebrate the encouragement of this irony that in the muck and the mire and might I say the quicksand of your life, that as Isaiah says, the high and lofty one is exalted and lifted up and yet he dwells with the meek and the lowly. We qualify, don't we? The lowly. God be thanked. Well, there's a final irony for us to look at this morning. And it opens up to us, again, the heart of God. We read of it in Matthew 1.25. 
But he knew her not, Joseph, until she had given birth to a son. Will we ever tire of understanding that God sent his son through the womb of a woman into our flesh? It's stunning. The son of God passes through the womb of an earthly woman as her own son. So let me multiply the ironies of that very thought. Think of them with me. The one who is eternally begotten by the Father is begotten of a woman in time. The one who has no beginning in eternity has a moment of conception in time. The one who was before all worlds began now is squeezed through the birth canal of a woman. The one from whose power all of creation comes and drinks its strength now drinks his strength from his mother's breast. Imagine. The one by whom all creation exists and by whom it all holds together. He enters creation surrounded by amniotic fluid and born in blood. The one who fashioned the heavens played kick the can under stars and moon that he himself created. The one who is all wisdom itself grows in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. The one who possesses every gift, every skill, and all knowledge Learn to walk and talk and sing and make furniture and do math from his father, a carpenter. The one who personally embodies all the righteousness of the law now sits under the law as a student in the temple courts. And he whose home is heaven itself We learn from the scriptures as best we can tell, he never owned anything except the clothes on his back. We have no record of his possessions except that which he carried with him or his disciples carried for him. The holy irony here is meant to provoke our praise and our adoration that your eternal Savior was born of a woman just like you. It had to be, or there would be no salvation. You and I would not be here this morning. We would be lost and without hope, and we would be under the righteous condemnation of a just God. How unimaginable that the Savior would pass through his creation and into our flesh even as he rules over it. Thanks be to God. Why then do we pay attention to these ironies? Because by them you need to see the heart of your Father. 
You need to see how deeply the love of God runs for his people, for you. These are historical facts, yes, but they're not only that. They're the story of God's glory breaking into my busted life and your busted life and changing everything. This is the story that gives meaning to your story. The gospel is good news, the good news of God's rescuing love. And dear friends, my final question this morning, are you listening to the story? The story of which Jesus is the center and you are the object of the affections of that story. That is remarkable. Take a new look into the story this morning by these ironies. The great C.S. Lewis, British thinker and believer, sums it up well. He dares to put words in Jesus' mouth. Give me all, Jesus says. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money, or so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I will have the whole tree down. Hand over your whole natural self, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. That's the story. Are you hearing the story? Are you listening to the story? Are you believing the story? May God help us all. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that the story is a story of which your majesty is front and center and our wretchedness is too. And it is the very story that gives meaning to our lives. Father, we cannot hear but by the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, Holy Spirit, and in these coming days, and perhaps for some for the first time ever, write the story upon our souls, indelibly, life-changingly, joyfully. We ask it to the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.